Citizen Reporter number 377, 1st of May 2011. In those days, the early part of the 20th century, from uh, the teens probably through the 30s, men and women in their homes made magazines. What means to come my way? They published their editorials and their essays themselves, and they took it as a serious matter. We don't have amateur journalism anymore, I guess, unless you count blocks. Good morning, everyone. It's Bicycle Mark here with you in Amsterdam for another edition of Citizen Reporter. And this is one of those occasions where I'm actually at home doing an interview with someone. Normally I have to travel or I have to contact them via Skype. But no, this morning we're here in Amsterdam and I'm sitting across from Eleanor Saita, a technologist, a, a hacker, a designer, an artist, uh, a concerned citizen of the world. And uh, we are going to talk a little bit about the concerns uh, of a citizen of the world. But first, we'll say uh, good morning, Eleanor. Welcome to the program. Good morning. It's good to be here. And uh, back in December, we were both in Berlin, and you gave a talk at the, uh, at the Chaos Communication Congress about how your infrastructure or our infrastructure uh, could very well kill us, uh, so to speak. Yeah. And um, as the few days that you've been here uh, in Amsterdam, we've talked a little bit about some aspects about urban environment, about uh, infrastructure, transport. And so I wanted to bring that a little bit uh, to the podcast. Um, first of all, I don't think that everyone realizes uh, the kind of things that you're pointing out in your talks when it comes to their city. I mean, we, we look outside, for example, here in Amsterdam, uh, or even maybe some New Yorkers, look outside and they think, my city's got it under control. Uh, because, look, the garbage collection, as long as they're not on strike, the garbage collection comes, uh, the, the pipes bring me water when I turn on the faucet. So um, where is it that you, uh, especially in terms of your research, uh, start off with when it comes to talking about what's wrong with infrastructure? I mean, what is wrong with infrastructure? Well, I'd say that there are problems at a bunch of different levels and you know in any given context you're going to have different aspects and different things showing up as problems um for instance uh right now uh in europe so your physical infrastructure is mostly in better shape than we are in the states but on the other hand the euro as a currency is looking fairly structurally unstable hmm. and if you get a large-scale currency collapse then that ricochets down to everything it ricochets down to food and to um, fuel and to transport mm. um, very quickly. So let's separate the two, I mean, even though you've just pointed out how they're interconnected. Uh, physical infrastructure, we're talking there about pipes, we're talking about transport systems, roads. Well, so f first off, I would argue that you can't really separate them because uh, a pipe is only useful when it has an organizational structure behind that that makes that pipe do something. You know, the water system is only useful when you have a water board running it. But given that, um, 
so I'd say that there's a, a few different things that we can look at as kind of contributing to a system that's more fragile than it appears to be. Um, we have a, uh, a, an environmental debt where we've built this infrastructure around a set of uh, environmental practices and constraints that are really not going to continue holding true. You know, we've built built a system that pollutes the environment, that uses resources that are not replaceable, and we're starting to hit a lot of those limits. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it may be five years, it may be 10 years, it may be 20 years, it might be 40 years, but it probably won't be before oil starts becoming stratospherically expensive. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's just not coming back. We're never going to live in an era of cheap oil again. Um you know, and, and you can look at the same, you can look at ocean acidification, you can look at global warming, you can look at mercury loads, you can look at all these different things where, you know, there's similar problems of varying degrees of severity. But you can also just look at the infrastructure itself. In both uh, the US and Europe, most of the infrastructure was built after the war, and it's been kind of expanded. But, you know, there's like a core of infrastructure that was built in maybe the 10 or 20 years after World War Two. And that's getting old, and we have to replace it, but we can't really afford to replace it anymore. I mean, if you look at the the financial collapse is one symptom, the financial crisis that we've seen is one symptom, but there are, there are kind of larger and deeper long-term problems. A lot of the infrastructure that we built was built on the money of colonialism. Mm-hmm. You know, the, uh, the West, the, the global North went out into the rest of the world, and took absolutely everything that was worth having from everyone else and shot everyone who got in the way and then treated that money as though it was regular income, not a one-time boon. Mm -hmm. And so now we're used to living at this standard where we are simply spending money and spending resources far faster than everyone else. And it's not clear that we're going to be able to keep doing that. Mm -hmm. Um, So there's this kind of uh, financial deficit in our infrastructure. Um, We also haven't been repairing it because it's very easy for companies to say, and this is something which is more true in the U S than it is in Europe, but it's very easy uh, for companies to say, yeah, we, we need to make better profits this year and we're spending a lot of money on infrastructure maintenance. So we'll just not spend some of that money this year. Mm -hmm. And so we book a profit. Great. And then we do the same thing next year because, well, nothing broke last year. But, you know, eventually you're 20 or 30, 40 years down the, low, down the road and uh, things do start breaking. Mm-hmm. And then you go to look at what it's going to cost to fix them and you realize it's, it's, you know, billions and billions or trillions and trillions of euros or dollars and you just don't have the money. Mm-hmm. So we have this kind of maintenance deficit. In the last 10, 10 to 20 years, both on this side of the Atlantic and on the other, a lot of these, for example, water system, the electricity grid, I mean, it's been privatized. And the one of the reasons for that was apparently to, to save on costs for a city. Uh, but allegedly, this would improve uh, services and things like that. I mean, is, has any of that come true anywhere? I mean, well, I mean, you may get slightly better quality of service, but it... I mean, it, and I would actually even argue that a lot of the time that I don't think it was actually really intended to, to save on costs. It was about corporate capture of value. It's about corporations saying, hey, municipalities or governments are providing services that we believe that we could make money if we provided instead. 
So therefore, there's some sort of moral obligation, because we live in a capitalist world, to let those private corporations make that money. And they did. And they, and they did. Yeah, yeah. But, and so it's one of, the, one of the other mismatches that we have is a timescale mismatch. Um, elected officials think in terms of electoral cycles. That's kind of where their future goes. Um, corporate supply chains think in terms of days or weeks or maybe months. Um, corporations think in terms of quarters or annual results. Um, civil servants are actually kind of our best hope there. Be- but even there, like a civil servant, you know, by the time that they're far enough along in their career that they understand long-term risk, is probably not going to be thinking past the end of their career. So that's like maybe 20 years. Hmm. But, you know, we have problems where, you know, it it's only obvious that this failure will happen at maybe a 50-year span or a 100-year span, where it's like, okay, of course, sometime in the next century, this bridge is going to fall down. That's just mm-hmm. going to happen. So therefore, we need to plan appropriately. We need to deal with maintenance budgets along those lines. We need to do all of these things. If, you, if you're thinking on too short of a time span, you don't necessarily see that. And so when infrastructure was more in the hands of civil servants, and civil servants were kind of doing the lifetime career thing, which they're not necessarily either, they at least had a, a, a thought span that was closer to the kind of timeline that was needed. Um, but now that the infrastructure isn't in their hands, or now that the um, you know that now that they're coming and going and careers faster, we don't really have anyone who's thinking on the right time span. Hmm. So we have this sort of time scale mismatch. Hmm. Although I realize it's it's all connected, I would like to talk specifically about food. And, yeah. and food supply. And now I've noticed in the city where I live here in Amsterdam and, and a bit when I go back to New York, some beginnings and in some cases uh, even a maturing of a, a eat local. Uh, it's not really a movement because people aren't running around saying, oh, I only eat local. But you see it in the, in the markets. Uh, you even see it in supermarkets now, uh, a push towards uh, food that comes locally. Uh, I wouldn't say a pride or anything like that, just a, a respect for it. Uh, and in many ways, I, th- I see that as a good sign in terms of geo you know, places in the world that, that will have their own food and should a crisis occur, would still, uh, depending on what kind of crisis. I'm thinking more of a that old way from the 90s uh, where food comes from extremely far away and we don't even think about it. Um, we just buy it. So... Let's talk a bit about the risks coming up with the the food uh, system. I almost said the food chain, but that's another matter. Yeah. <laughs> Most of the risks in the food chain are if you're at the bottom of it, yeah. or if you're getting mercury poisoning from being at the top of it. But um, I mean, food security is a really big issue that some countries are starting to take seriously, but it's it's really difficult. I mean, a lot of big cities don't have enough arable land left around them to produce at least not without really heroic efforts, the, uh, you know, an, a sufficient quantity of food to actually feed everyone who lives in the city. And as cities grow, I mean, a, a lot of cities historically were cited like, oh, here's this convenient harbor surrounded by all this fertile farmland. So we'll, we'll start a town here. Yeah. And then that city grows and they pave all of that fertile farmland. So a lot of most even in a lot of developed, especially high density developed countries, most of the best land is under concrete. Mm-hmm. So we don't necessarily have the capacity near those cities anymore to feed everyone in the country. And we certainly don't, 
you know, if, if we're, if we're eating a relatively high impact diet, if we're eating a lot of meat, um, we don't necessarily have that, you know, we can't supplement fish at the, uh, the kind of scale that we used to thinking of doing in the diet without going a very long way to catch those fish. And most of that, that fishing isn't sustainable anyway. Mm-hmm. You know, we're overfishing, we're not fishing at levels, which are going to allow those resources to renew themselves. So, yeah, I, I do think we've got a lot of a, we've got a fairly big problem there. It's, we'll, we'll see whether or not it ends up being a terminal problem. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I think it's the kind of thing that I could see that a slow shift could bring us back to more sustainable ways of eating, um, which is great if we have time for the slow shift. Mm-hmm. And the worry, I mean, and it's great to see the locavore movement happening, but the worry is that so if we run out of oil, if we, you know, if, if climate change gets too bad, if, you know, whatever the set of things that, that triggers it is, if that happens more quickly than we've been able to adapt, yeah. which is showing every sense of doing, then we end up in a really tough place. Yeah. Yeah. And that, and that reconnects again with whatever changes I could point out, like here in Amsterdam, I can point out that we start to see electric uh, car generating, uh, powering stations, charging stations, and they're strategically installed all over the city. But again, when I look at that, on the one hand, I can be excited uh, as, as a, something positive. On the other hand, it's very little uh, in the way of change, uh, and it's very slow. And uh, Yeah, and it, um, I mean, I don't know what your power mix is here, but it's not necessarily that much better than gas. Mm-hmm. Because if you're burning, um, if you've got uh, LPNG uh, power stations, mm-hmm. then I mean, okay, it's it, instead of instead of gasoline, it's LPNG. You're still going to run out of it, you know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, if you've got enough wind power that that can be a significant chunk of your load, maybe that's good. And in theory, if you have enough electric car capacity, that can actually work as load shifting because you have mm-hmm. this distributed battery network. But on the other hand, in the end, you end up with um, you know, you're still you're still promoting this car culture. You're promoting this incredibly inefficient transportation system where individual people have to have their own thousand or, or you know two thousand kilo chunk of metal and plastic to haul themselves around by. Yeah. And I mean, in Amsterdam, you're actually much much better off than most places. You have a really you know an expensive but still very functional transit system. You have a very very functional train system. And everyone bikes everywhere, mm-hmm. you know, so you're in a much, much better position than even New York is, say, and certainly better than a city like Dallas or Atlanta, mm-hmm. where, where it's completely car driven. Yeah. What about the, I know that there's some excitement around the world, or at least in the U.S., for these cities that have uh, fallen into decay, where a lot of people have left. I'm thinking of a Detroit, for example, and they get a lot of attention now also for the urban farming and the sort of, what is it? It's like a post-apocalyptic scenario in some ways where uh, things got so bad that actually something positive came forward and people take back land and, and start to farm where it wasn't hadn't been farmed in a long time, although that's risky, I suppose. Um, but what about that? When, when things have gotten so bad in some parts of the world already that something new starts to happen and perhaps something more sustainable. Well, the reason why you can farm Detroit is everyone left, right. you know, and they left and they went to Chicago and they went to New York or they went to wherever. Um, you know, it's not like those 
It's not like farmland somehow magically appeared. It appeared because a half million people left the city, and so now there are empty lots. You know, now there are places where houses can be torn down and you can grow food there. But that's not the same as saying, you know, I mean, if if you take two-thirds of the population out of a city by migration and then you get to farm all those empty lots, you know, maybe that can be kind of picturesque and quaint if you ignore the class issues there. Um, it's not so fun when you when half the people in the city die and then you get to start farming, right. you know, okay. which is, which okay. is a, a kind of a more realistic trajectory there for, you know, when you're not dealing with this kind of selective economic uh, depopulation, like what happened in Detroit. And I think there's also just a lot of romanticization of apocalypse and of disaster. You know, we don't, uh, we don't know what else to look forward to. We don't have, a coherent vision of the future going forward. And we can't come to terms with the fact that the future might not be about us. Mm-hmm. You know, that the world is going to keep on going no matter what happens to us. There's no end of the world in that sense. Um, but, you know, so you have this kind of like, oh, I'm going to be the lone survivor. It'll just be me and my band of chosen friends going off into the future. You know, and we get to have the best pick of the land. And, yes. You know, and there's this very kind of romantic image. But if you if you dig under that romantic image, a lot of it's hiding a real fear. We don't have narratives for what happens after. No. For, you know, if things do get really bad, if we don't find the technological fix that allows us to keep burning you know, burning through massive amounts of energy, you know, having our our 15,000 kilowatt hour per day Western world footprints or whatever they are, you know, if we don't find that quick fix, what happens then? Mm -hmm. Um, There's a project in the UK called the Dark Mountain Project, which is working on trying to come up with some of those narratives and trying to say, okay, so let's you know, let's not try to save the world because that's this very colonial attitude. Like, we're going to conquer nature. Well, that didn't work. Well, we're going to save the world for who? You know, who is this we that is not part of the world? Mm-hmm. You know, we are part of the world. Maybe we'll get to save ourselves. But, you know, I mean, but so if you, once you go beyond that attitude, okay. So, so at some point, you know, we wake up one morning and look out the door and it's what... You know, us sitting here in this in this room now would call, well, that was the end of the world. Well, we wake up the next morning, and then what? Mm-hmm. And what stories do I tell? Do we tell ourselves then? And how do we see and understand the world then? Mm-hmm. So they're trying to, to start thinking about that seriously and, and looking at that, not looking away from that kind of black heart. And, under, you know, coming to terms with that and coming to understand, okay, so this is this is how we can see the world then. So that maybe by the time... You know, by the time it does happen, then you can actually, um, you know, not be caught by surprise and actually say, okay, yes, I I understand what has happened. I have a story now. Yeah. So part of your work when you're traveling and speaking is, I mean, you're, you're warning us, are you? <laughs> Hopefully. I mean, you know, to a certain extent... I'm a person who pokes at systems and sees how they break. Mm-hmm. You know, that's kind of what I do. Yeah. And this is another system for me to poke at. Okay. You know, so there's a certain extent, I, which I'm not going to deny, that it's just, hey, this is a cool problem. But, you know, I mean, if if I could be successful in saying, hey, this is a thing that we need to deal with, 
we need to deal with seriously, that would be wonderful. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's, I mean, I, I have a lot of respect for the current green movement and they've, you know, I mean, it's, it's, you know, shoulders of giants and all that. But on the other hand, if we don't get large organizational change, none of it matters. Mm-hmm. Um, the most, the two most positive things that I could see as, as signs that, yeah, we might make it out of this would be if we got like kind of five-year timescale commitments mm-hmm. in the next couple years from the U.S. Department of Defense saying we are committing to non-hydrocarbon-based war fighting, that like within five or at most ten years, we want to use absolutely no hydrocarbons anywhere in our entire supply chain. That would be amazing. Yeah. And they've, I mean, they're they starting down that road in little bits and pieces. They've committed to 50% biofuel power for all um, uh, DOD aviation by 2020, um, which is... An aggressive target. It's an interesting target. It's a good start. Mm-hmm. I think it's going to do you know horrific things, further horrific things to the uh, world food markets, mm-hmm. as the DoD effectively um, just buys massive swaths of productive land for biofuel growth. Mm-hmm. You know, so I'm not going to say that that's actually a net good, but it's certainly interesting. You know, and then the other thing would be for Walmart to make the same commitment. Yeah. You know, and if the DoD and Walmart both said, hey. Five years, no more hydrocarbons, you know, not just carbon neutral, but no more hydrocarbon dependency, no more um, oil-sourced plastics, none of it. Mm-hmm. That would be interesting. And then that might give me hope to say, okay, yeah, maybe maybe we can actually do this thing. Yeah. Let's see, in this case, you're talking about uh, if this were to happen, then this would be a, an encouraging sign. Uh, are there things that are happening at the moment that are encouraging science. Uh, you and I were talking a little bit about uh, the return in some parts of the world, very small scale, but the return of local currencies, for example. But but I, I thought of that. I mean, I think there are, there are lots of interesting projects out there. And I, I, I hope all of those projects succeed because there are a lot of people really earnestly trying to do very good work and you do have to start somewhere at some level. Mm. Um, I'm pretty pessimistic. I don't think very many of these projects are working at a scale that will make any difference. Mm-hmm. And I mean, okay, so if you get enough of them, right, it's an additive effect, mm-hmm. you know. But um, the the tipping point for this curve is the the major huge international scale corporations you know it's when when the walmarts and the dod's and the general electrics of the world start to move yeah and if they start to move as a unit and make real commitments you know or or the very large national economies you know if uh if the u.s or germany or the uk or china said hey this hydrocarbon thing is not going to put us where we where we need to be economically in five years or ten years, it's putting us somewhere really dangerous. You know, we're going to have the we're going to have the space race of getting off hydrocarbons. You know, yeah. I mean, maybe that's maybe that's the economic turnaround driver for you know the U.S. or for Europe is saying, okay, you know, we're gonna we're gonna print money and we're gonna spend that money, but we're gonna spend it on building real infrastructure and doing real research and turning things around so that we're not just you know, we're, we're energy independent. We're completely hydrocarbon neutral. You know, great. 
Yeah. Um, but and 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 hopefully the small projects can lead to that. Hmm. But unless they start moving a lot faster, I don't see it happening. Yeah. So every now and then I run into that that opinion, uh, and it's it's there are a lot of people who support it. I don't want to give it a label, but the opinion that be it a city, be it the world, will make the change that it has to make only when it's there's no choice. Uh, Absolutely. Uh, but then they take comfort in saying that. They say, well, don't worry. The world, un- for better or for worse, the world always, only when there's no other choice do they make a drastic change or need a change. But I think, isn't the problem with that, that in this case you may take comfort in the fact that the, when it's absolutely necessary, there will be a change, but it in fact may be too late. Like you may not, we may not survive as a, as humans on the earth. Uh, if we wait till that moment. Um, I think that we will, there will, we're, we're not talking about a species die off event here. Mm-hmm. Human beings are going to survive. Mm-hmm. I mean, it might only be a few million of them, you know, I mean, I honestly, rural India is probably going to do fine. Mm. Big, big chunks of rural India because they haven't been able to switch over. They haven't gotten in the door to the hydrocarbon economy on the same scale. So, I mean, you know, you know, maybe maybe they see a, a 25 percent die off mm-hmm. and, you know, us over here in the in the global north see a 95 percent die off. Mm-hmm. Um you know, I mean, you're still not talking about everyone, mm-hmm. but I would, I mean, I would argue, you know, it may, it may honestly already be too late. You know, it's, there is no archaeological record of any culture that has survived their primary resource exhausting itself. It hasn't happened. So, I mean, maybe we'll be the first. Maybe we'll be different, right? Mm-hmm. You know, and it doesn't mean that everyone died, right? I mean, sometimes like the Mayans, everyone did die, or mm-hmm. the, the Incans, rather, everyone did die. Mm-hmm. But, you know, sometimes like the Romans, whose <laughs> primary resource was other uninvaded countries, mm-hmm. um, you know, it wasn't that everyone died. It was just that, that you had a massive contraction of civilization. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I don't see any way that we're going to avoid that. Mm-hmm. Um because honestly, I think, I mean, yeah, maybe if we started working right now, it might be possible. But even then, there's this, there's this chain, and there's a, there's a great paper about uh, catabolic collapse of civilizations, um, where, where you just end up in this pattern where even if you can start shifting away from your primary resource, mm-hmm. whatever you do to replace the primary resource ends up requiring more capital and you know, you know, as, as infrastructure, not necessarily as money, but you know, more more capital investment and that kind of thing. And then that capital requires more upkeep, but you're in a more precarious position because you don't have this resource coming in. So, and whatever you've replaced it with is probably not as efficient as what you were using before. And so you end up on a narrower and narrower margin. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, I mean, it wouldn't surprise me too much if we ended up in that pattern. You know, and and so maybe, you know, maybe in five years we do come to a realization and we have a huge effort and we get sort of close to um, to making it. But, you know, I could I could see it being a long, drawn out process of never really quite getting to another steady state. Mm. 
um, or getting to a steady state because we haven't really been in one. So, so yeah, and, and I think the the idea that the world will only change when it has to is is dangerous because by the time the world has to, it's it's almost certainly going to be too late, right? What is what is has to? Mm-hmm. Is has to two hundred dollars U.S. a barrel of oil? Is has to a thousand dollars a barrel of oil? Yeah. Right, right. You know, and then how many barrels of oil does it take to convert, you know, seven billion people to a non-oil-based economy? And do you have that many barrels? But we haven't reached it yet. I mean, because even though people will talk about how expensive gas is, they're still driving. Uh, that's one of the what I notice anyway. Well, we haven't reached the point where it's obvious that we have to do this, but we don't know how hard it is to get off of oil. You know, so we, I mean, we, we have no way and we, we don't have an accurate picture of what the world reserves look like. I mean, there's, there's rumors that Saudi Arabia may have been maybe overstating the reserves, Hmm. in which case we could be, you know, five years past peak oil. Right. Um, yeah, but we, we, I mean, we don't really know what the curves look like, so we have no idea if this is already past the tipping point. And, you know, if it's not peak oil, it's something else. Hmm. I mean, this, you know, this isn't just about oil. I mean, the Netherlands, especially, I mean, are we above sea level here? No. You know, <laughs> I mean, you know, a uh, a one or two meter sea rise might be survivable mm-hmm. for the Netherlands. Um, mm-hmm. You know, what about a 10 meter sea rise? Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. 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 And so... In terms of your work, uh, uh, I mean, you're you're looking at these problems. You're you're talking about them for sure. Uh, are you also working at all in the world of, of solutions? Is that part of? Does that get to be part? Of, I mean, do you want that to be part of your your work? You know, there's a lot of people working on solutions. Mm-hmm. Um, you get to meet them. <laughs> yeah, I get to meet some of them, um, but it's not it's not where my skill set lies. I mean, mm-hmm. what I what I do for a living and what I do in this space is poke at systems and see how they fail. Mm-hmm. And they're like complex multi-system failures and that kind of thing are a relatively obscure thing, at least in the vernacular and the kind of the common understanding of how the world works and how the world doesn't work. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, and I mean, I know there are other people you know, it's not like I'm the only person doing this work. There are lots of other people studying it, but you know, if I can bring a contribution there and if I can, as much as that help people understand how the systems that they depend on fail, mm-hmm. then, you know, maybe that's a useful contribution. Yeah, for sure it is. All right. Well, Eleanor Saita, it's good to have you at my house and uh, good to have you in Amsterdam. Uh, for people who want to follow your work, what's the best way? Is it Twitter or... Yeah, it's probably Twitter. I'm uh, Dymaxion on Twitter, D-Y-M-A-X-I-O-N. Mm-hmm. All right, so people can follow your work. I, I, you're often having discussions with people on there, which is also uh, interesting to watch. So, uh, yeah, thanks so much for taking the time. Of course, it's been good to be here.
Darkness 